everyone on this app posts about their Range Rovers, their Bentleys, and their uh, Rolls Royces. Habibi, this is where the real game is. This is a 1999 Toyota Camry, aka Snow White McQueen. With the power of three horses and one miraculous, amazing Himar, this beast does zero to a hundred in 13.9 seconds. Now let's take you inside and make you hear that engine roar. Bismillah. Calm down. Calm down, my beast. Calm down. Let's test the AC real quick. Oh, what in the mother of Antarctica and Ski Dubai is this? I'm sweating from how cold this is. Oh my God. To the ladies who are gonna hit me up after this video, don't because I know there are a lot of gold diggers out there. When the crowd gets so thick like this, it's almost suffocating, hard to breathe. They're gathered by the thousands, shoulder to shoulder, stepping on toes, the Middle Eastern sun so high in the sky, no clouds to diminish its full force. It's hot, uncomfortable. But it's Jesus here, the teacher, the miracle worker. You, you don't want to miss it. Between the swaying shoulders, the craning necks, even with the breath and the sweat, the odor of the thousands, kids pulling on your robe, the grain is still in the field. There's tasks to complete back at home, but it's Jesus here. Some say he's a prophet, others say he's of the devil. Whatever the case, you don't, you don't want to miss it. Between the swaying shoulders and the craning necks, through the gaps left open by the turning heads, there he is, you can see him. The teacher, the miracle worker, the prophet, or as some say, the devil. But he looks simple. Like, ordinarily so, unspecial, if it were a word. But according to the hype, he's anything but. And as he speaks, a hush rolls over the crowd. His words are plain and simple, like unordinary, unspecial. So it seems. He tells stories of yeast and doors, light and dark, sparrows and copper coins, all to speak of much larger things like hypocrisy and fear and confession and God. He says, don't worry about defending yourself when you're brought to courts in the synagogues before the rulers and authorities for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. 
And now I don't know if it was someone next to you or behind you, or maybe it was you who spoke. But I bet all eyes turned from the teacher to that someone next to you or behind you or maybe to you. And then all eyes jet straight back to Jesus waiting for his response because these, these are money matters, serious stuff. And what does Jesus have to say about it? Today we continue our sermon series called Facing Fear in which we've been exploring Luke chapter 12 and a whole host of fears. Fear and hypocrisy, fear and God, fear and confession, and today it's fear and money. And as we begin, let's ask God for his words, his will, his way, for him to speak to us. And so if you're able to stand, I wanna invite you to stand as we pray. And if you're able to, why don't, why don't you just get in a posture of prayer? Maybe it helps to just physically open up our hands, open up our, our arms as if we were to receive something from God today, because that's what we're here to do. So God, I ask that you would come in, that you would fill this place like you already have, but even stronger, Lord, that now our minds and our hearts and our wills and everything about us would be attuned to you. all the distractions and all the things that await us later today or tomorrow or next week or in the future, Lord, would they just be put on pause right now? Because we want to hear from you. We want to receive from you. So, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O oh God? our rock, and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. says, then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. It sounds like a courtroom issue, a financial drama that tears families apart. And you know, we see it all the time. Like dad dies and there's an inheritance that gets split up among all the kids. But apparently that didn't happen here. Something's gone awry and it's caused conflict. And that's not hard to do when it comes to money, you know. But what is it about money? What is it about money matters that make it so sticky and awkward and challenging? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's lack. Maybe it's scarcity or greed or this feeling of deservingness. But Jesus replied, friend, I like how the NIV puts it, man, more like man, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? You know, call up Judge Judy. This is not my job. This is not my role. But Jesus must have been like, you know what? This is actually an epic teaching moment, and I'm going to take advantage of it. Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. So not just the money kind. But every kind of greed, that strong, unrelenting desire to acquire more and more 
and more and more. But that someone calling from the crowd, hearing this, must have been thinking like, what the? The money is mine. I deserve it. It's my inheritance. It's rightfully mine. Tell my brother to divvy it up. I deserve this. Super important to know that when we come to the Bible, we are like tourists. Tourists visiting a different time and a different culture. And when we come to the Bible, as we are like tourists visiting a different time and a different culture, we should understand that when a father died in this particular time and culture, the oldest son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance. Wow. The second son or third or fourth, they would split up the remaining one-third of the inheritance or the estate. So I bet you this someone calling from the crowd, it's got to be the younger brother right, who got either like zero-thirds of the inheritance or, you know, his rightful fair share, one-third. And in this different time and in this different culture, it was common for people to ask respected teachers, rabbis, to weigh in on personal ethical issues, like divvying up the inheritance, to be an objective third party to help make a decision. But this someone calling from the crowd, he just sounds like he wants Jesus just to take his side. So what does Jesus do? Instead of saying like, wow, bro, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> instead of, or instead of saying, oh, let's go talk to your brother. Is that him right there? I'm going to go Old Testament on him. Sounds like a real tool bag. No. No, instead of getting close, instead of even getting close to satisfying the greed, instead of saying something like, you know what? This is rightfully yours. You do deserve this. No, no, no. Jesus, instead of even getting close, remotely close to satisfying the greed, Jesus says, beware. Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Instead of helping the man get his inheritance, Jesus helps him to a new understanding of life. Jesus tells him, life is not measured. It is not calculated. It is not defined by how much you own. Uh, Actually, it is, though. You know, Range Rovers, Bentleys, Rolls Royces, not to mention 1999 Toyota Camrys, 0 to 113.9 seconds. Woo! Unreal. I used to have a, a 1997 Forest Green Honda Accord DX edition. And, uh, like, who needs power windows when you've got the brute strength in your forearms? Who needs powered locks when you've got power in your fingertips? It was my grandmother's car, and and I received it from her, inherited it from her. She was still alive, is still alive. She just didn't want the car anymore, I guess. So I received the 1997 four-screen Honda Accord DX Edition, all four cylinders, 
if you were to run the AC at a stoplight or something, rumbled the entire car violently. And uh, I, I don't know, if you were at a, a complete stop, even just like a slow idle, pretty much if you weren't accelerating, the entire car would, would rumble violently. And so I, I slap the AC on the dash, turning it back on as I speed past a stop sign. A moment later, I'm making a slow right turn into a parking lot, and I have to turn the AC back off. Uh, fortunately, it is equipped with powered blinkers, and so Tara and I don't have to do hand signals as we're turning into this parking lot. This parking lot is unlike anything I had ever seen before. It's not gravel, it's not concrete, it's not asphalt. It's perfectly manicured grass. Parking lot. Because, I, I don't know, I guess you can only park Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Bentleys and Rolls Royces and Maseratis on only perfectly manicured grass. At least that's how it goes at the Santa Barbara Polo and Racket Club. <laughs> yeah. So I creep my 1997 forest green Honda Accord DX edition into the parking lot right up next to a yellow Lamborghini. But it was probably like called something fancier than that, like Medallion Glow or Tuscan Sun, right? And next to the Lamborghini is a Bentley worth more than my entire neighborhood. Next to that is a Ferrari that probably raced in Formula One. But as I'm creeping my Honda Accord up to this parking spot, I am sweating buckets. My palms are sweaty, my pets, my pits, my pecs, yeah, my pits are, I don't know, I guess my pecs were uh, sweaty too, but my pits were sweaty. Uh, my, my forehead was percolating beads of sweat, not because I just couldn't run the AC, but because I don't have an extra $250,000 to spare. And then for a moment, as I do manage to park unscathed, as I manage to roll up the windows manually, it, it occurs to me, you probably don't have to lock your car. <laughs> and for a moment, yeah, shocker, I know, right? For a moment, just for a moment, I feel that pinch. You know, like deep, deep in your gut. Maybe you felt that before, that pinch. Like, who are you? Who are you compared to Mr. Lamborghini? Who are you? Well, first of all, I am Mr. I don't have a $250,000 car payment. But secondly, and far more important, I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. I'm a disciple of the one who had no start and knows no ends. I'm a servant of the God most high. I am loved, treasured, adored by the everlasting God, the great I am. I am cherished and held fast by the one who holds the stars in the creases of his hands. I am saved by the author of life, who he himself said life is not measured. It is not calculated. It is not defined by how much you own. 
And then when the crowd gets so thick like this, where it's almost suffocating, then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So the man is rich, his farm is fertile, the crops are fine. Not like when she says, I'm fine. (laughs) It's fine. Nothing. It's fine. No, but fine, like really fine, as in good. There's nothing outlandish about this image here. Rich man, good farm, good crops. I mean, you might say that it's outlandish that a farmer is actually rich, but beyond that, it's all rather simple. Like ordinarily so, unspecial. It says, he, the rich farmer, said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. You know, expansion, the American dream, capitalism, bigger, better, beyond, more, 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 right? Uh, Okay, then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. Sounds wise, right? Rich man, good field, good crops. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough enough stored away for years to come, a comfortable, cozy retirement package. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry, happily ever after. But God said to him, you fool, you fool, you will die this very night. Or a more literal translation is this night your soul is required of you. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. What the? What? He's a fool. I don't get it. We're in a crowd, shoulder to shoulder, stepping on toes, the Middle Eastern sun, so high in the sky, no clouds to diminish, it's full force, it's hot, uncomfortable, and Jesus, the teacher, the miracle worker, the prophet, or some say the devil, he speaks of yeast and doors, light and dark, sparrows and copper coins, and someone brings up money matters. Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus tells a story about what I thought was the baseline for every financial system success story. But it's not happily ever after. God calls this person a fool. What, 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 what am I missing? And then, am I the fool for not seeing what's wrong? Let's go back. I must have missed something. Verse 16, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So the man's rich, his farm is fertile, the crops are fine. Nothing outlandish about this image here. It's all rather simple, like ordinarily so, unspecial, except verse 17. He said to himself, wait, who's, who's he talking to? He said to himself, oh, okay, talking to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. 
I mean, I guess he sort of sounds a little self-absorbed, a little self-centered. Then he said again to himself here, I know I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. Okay, so he's sort of sounding a lot more self-absorbed, a a lot more self-centered. I mean, his plans push confidently into the future. I will do this. I will do that. Look again. I'll, which is the contraction of I will, I will tear down my barns and I will, the verb tense continues, I will build bigger ones. Then I will have room enough to store all my wheat and my, the emphasis is there, my other goods. So the rich man's land produces a surplus that he can't possibly eat. And so what does he do? He stores it away, hoping that when there's less grain available, the price of grain will rise and he'll make a fortune off it. It's legal, but it's also greedy behavior. And I will sit back and say to myself, not to God, but to myself. The Greek is actually tesuke mu, to my soul. I will say to my soul, my friend, still talking to himself, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Well, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament tells us what to do. The difference is in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, the teacher, reminds us to humbly enjoy all that God has blessed us with. But the rich fool in this story is just engaged in self-centered pleasure-seeking rather than living for God. He's totally self-absorbed, daring to boast about the future. And did you catch how annoying it is? Not just my voice, the possessive pronoun. It's all my crops, my barns, my wheat, my goods, and finally, my soul. My, 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 my. It's like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Totally self-absorbed. So self-centered. Boasting about the future. Possessing everything. I mean, he even thought that his soul was his. In Greek, suke is often translated as soul. It's also the root word for psychology which expresses or reflects our current culture's understanding and concept of personhood. Suke, the soul, is the life force, the personality, the personhood of a human being. In the Hebrew Old Testament, there's another word that similarly reflects this idea. It's captured by the word nefesh, which is often translated as soul, life, self, or breath. And as we learn from Genesis chapter 2, which is the first book of the Bible, in the second chapter, the nephesh, the soul, or life, or breath, is given by God. God is the giver and the sustainer of our lives, our souls. So when God says your soul is required of you, in verse 20, God is in effect asking this man to answer, how did you spend How did you spend the soul, life, breath you were given? Uh, 
<laughs> totally self-absorbed and self-centered. Okay, but what, what of his interactions with like the other characters in the story? How about, how about them? Uh, well, there are no other characters in the story. There is no one else. The man has shut everyone else from his life and thoughts. The thought of giving never even crosses his mind. There's no sense of responsibility to use his riches for the welfare of those less fortunate. Greed has eaten away any compassion he may once have had. There is no one else in the story. Just the man and his possessions until God speaks to him. You fool, you will die this very night. More little tra literal translation is this night your soul is required of you. Then who will get everything you worked for? I guess your sons who will fight over divvying it up. How, how did I miss it? Like, how did I not catch this the first time through? And I wonder, what does that say about me? Am I the fool for not seeing what's wrong? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. The, the house is a disaster. Disaster. Trash everywhere. Torn open cardboard all over the rug. Ribbons and bows across the couches. A dying Christmas tree no longer has anything beneath it on which to shed its needles. The pile of presents has been picked clean. Yeah, yeah, we skim the Bible story. <laughs> before diving into the gifts. Yeah, 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 you know, it's all about Jesus, the greatest gift of all. Now, what'd you get from me? Plastic 13-gallon bags are stuffed full of balled-up wrapping paper and then jammed into the overflowing recycle bin. But who knows if they'll be used again or just dumped into a landfill or the Pacific Ocean. Brand new bikes fabricated in China by underpaid and most likely exploited labor sit in the front yard with bows on top. The knockoff Nerf gun is pretty awesome. Zeke already managed to shoot me in the neck <laughs> and my mom between the eyes. I can't get mad at him. I mean, he's a good shot. Etta's at least redeeming the family as she thumbs through the pages of her brand new My First Bible and Nora's busy eating the trash. Oh In a semicircle around me, I, uh, I have more stuff that I don't need. I'm grateful, yeah, of, of course, I'm grateful. But Christmas sometimes wells up something in me that I, I don't particularly like. Like a similar pinch in the gut, you know, deep down greed gnawing at me. You know, that strong, unrelenting desire for more and more and more 
and more. And maybe to minimize the greed, we only get the kids three gifts, or Santa does, whoever. Uh, it's, it's a messy theology, I know, but uh, <laughs> three gifts. Uh, my niece is in her up front here, so sorry about that. <laughs> but um, Santa also gets some gifts too, but uh, we only do three gifts. Um, because Jesus only got three gifts, right? And clearly they don't yet understand the value of gold, frankincense, and myrrh quite yet. But it still feels like all too much. Not the act of giving, but just having so much stuff. And I'm like a minimalist, but I don't know how to deal and feel about my wealth. Like all the things I own. Because, well, sometimes it begins to feel like the things I own, own me. Like, am I just filling up my barn with more and more to tear it down, just to build more, to fill it up with more? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. What is it about us and the supposed need to acquire more and more and more earthly wealth? I think Jesus is telling us today to face our fears about lack and scarcity, about want and need, about missing out or not having enough, about greed and pride and wealth and all that it might mean. And I think Jesus is helping us to find a better attitude, a better perspective, a better relationship with it all. And so uh, next week we can have a garage sale. You know, we can bring all your possessions and give them away. Or we could have a really big bonfire. And that might solve everything for a day or a week or a month. But I think what might be far more effective into transforming us into passionate world changers for Jesus is to focus on his four last words in this verse. Rich relationship with God. I figure if my highest goal, if my greatest aim, my utmost passion and desire and energy, if it's all poured into a rich relationship with God and everything is filtered and calibrated and attuned to and through that, everything else becomes clearer. Obvious. No brainer when my sole focus is a rich relationship with God. You know what happens? I begin to love God and love people and love life so much more. When everything is all about and everything that I'm all about is a rich relationship with God. Pursuing a rich relationship with God makes every difference in every aspect of my life. Every difference. It gives me a confidence, a strength, generosity, satisfaction, hope, peace, trust, security, salvation, wisdom, humility, gratefulness, guts, and grit. A rich relationship with God allows me to face and overcome every fear, every worry, every anxiety, every lack and bout of scarcity in my mind and situation. It is the antidote of every kind of greed. It is the cure-all to every strong, unrelenting desire to acquire more and more and more because a rich relationship with God is far more than enough. And I know I'm speaking from a first world perspective in cozy, cushy Camarillo. It's a city where for some, financial collapse is a breath away. 
And maybe that's the weight that is crushing you here today. <laughs> and for others, money is a God we worship. And sure, you know, it's just numbers and accounts tied up in stocks or bonds, but it's really, it's really a mirror that we pay homage to if we're honest. I don't know too much about all of that, the numbers and the figures, but what I do know is that when we go to the Bible, we are tourists visiting a different time and a different culture. And greed is something that transcends different times and cultures and tax brackets. You can be rich or you can be bankrupt and still deal with just as much greed. I really do think the only solution to it all is a rich relationship with God. So how, how do we engage in a rich relationship with God? It's simple, like ordinarily so, unspecial so it seems, but it's more important than anything. First of all, we thank God that God has never been anything but willing to be in a rich relationship with us. Who are we that you would be mindful of us, God? <laughs> We're your handiwork, your craftsmanship, your masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you prepared in advance for us to do. And so we live like it, surrendering everything about our will and our way, giving and forgiving, loving and serving and honoring and being generous in every way. This is realistic and it's radical. And it's more important than anything. A rich relationship with God requires time. So you'll make it. Bible study, prayer, listening. A rich relationship with God requires others. So you'll join in community, groups, church. A rich relationship with God requires commitment. So you'll do it. it requires guts. So you'll use them. Generosity. So you'll sacrifice anything. It requires worship. So you'll praise Him. A rich relationship with God requires humility. So you'll serve. It requires openness so you'll receive. And I invite you just to receive these words into everything that you might be going through right now. I invite you to close your eyes. I invite you maybe just move this stuff off your lap, anything that might distract you, and just, just listen, just hear these words deep in your heart, your soul, your, your mind, your strength, everything that you are. Just pause for a moment. You know, you may not believe any of these words, thoughts in your mind might be so scattered or so fractured that you cannot receive. Life may have crippled you so incapacitated that you can't, can't anything. Anxiety is inescapable. Depression is never ceasing. Worry has you turned inside out. But in the chaos of it all, know this, I am with you, declares the Lord. He doesn't whisper it. He doesn't utter it. He doesn't simply say it. He declares it. I am with you. 
He declares it. That means to formally announce emphatically. And when God speaks, galaxies are born, universes take shape, matter is formed, seas are wrangled, light is unleashed, life comes from nothing. And this same God declares, I am with you. So why don't you think it's true? Are the circumstances in your life too much for you? Is it all too heavy, too much to handle? Well, good. Perfect, actually. Now you see it. Self-sufficiency, doing it on your own, is a myth perpetuated by pride and temporary success. You were never meant to do it on your own. Of course it's too much to handle. Of course it's too heavy. Of course the circumstances of your life are too much for you. But not for him. The one who had no start and knows no end. The one who holds the stars and the creases of his hands. The everlasting God, the great I am, the God most high, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the author of life, who wants more than anything to share that life with you because his love for you no words can express. And we try to say things like unconditional or never-ending or unrelenting. You see, we have, have to use words of negation to try and speak of the perfect goodness of God's love. It is unsearchable, incredible, inconceivable. It's too much, far beyond our ability to conceptualize. This love is for you. It's more than a feeling, it's more than an emotion, it's more than a mindset or opinion or preference. It is reality at its most basic fundamental truth. God loves you, God is with you, and God wants a rich relationship with you more than anything. And he gave everything to make it so. So how will you surrender everything about your will and everything about your way? How will you give and how will you forgive? How will you love and serve and honor in every way? How will you make time? How will you be humble? How will you commit? How will you worship? How will you receive? How will you live in a rich relationship with God?